We are Anthem Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. For all the info you need, visit anthemforall.org and follow at Anthem Church Chicago. All right, Revelation chapter 5. If you can turn in uh, your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 5. I just so loved the worship time this morning and um, so many of the songs that we were singing and the words that we were singing just tie in so beautifully with the text that we're going to be looking at today. Um, just while you turn there, I'm going to pray and ask God to just continue to speak to us. Lord, thank you for the privilege of gathering in your name, Jesus. And we are just so appreciative of all that you've already done. And Lord, as we come to the, the talking and listening part of worship, uh, we, we pray that you would continue to, to minister to us, Lord and continue to speak to us and continue to strengthen us. And Holy Spirit, we in, in ask that you would continue to, to bring the breakthrough that so many of us here are trusting for. And Lord, let it truly not be by might nor power, but let it be by your Spirit this morning, that you would break into our hearts, that you would break into our lives as we just surrender and receive your presence this morning. And so we just ask for, for you to move and minister as we jump into the word in Jesus' name. Amen. I think most of you uh, here, um, if you've been around Anthem for a while, will know that even though we sound South African and that's where we're originally from, Debs and I and our family are in fact American citizens. Um, it happened a few years ago, but that wasn't the case when we arrived in 2004. Uh, 2004, we arrived from South Africa on what is known as a religious workers visa. And that visa allowed us to get into the country and to live in the country for three years. Uh, then we then had to apply for a renewal, an extension for an additional two years. And the plan was during that two-year period for us to apply for our green cards. And once we obtained our green cards, we would be able to become U.S. citizens. That's a, a very short summary of an incredibly lengthy and faithful journey, which I don't have time to, to share right now. But the part that I wanted to just touch on this morning is the time when it came for our, our R1 or religious worker visa to be renewed, to be extended from three years to two, uh, for an additional two years. Speaking to our immigration attorney, he told us that the best way for that to happen was for me, the primary visa holder, to actually leave the country and to visit a US embassy in a foreign nation and to apply for the extension then. But it came with a warning, the possibility of the visa being denied and therefore me not being able to get back into the country again. And that was a very real possibility. But by faith, we, we felt it was right for us to, to, to do this. So Sunday night, on a Sunday night, I flew off to Ottawa, Canada, the capital of Canada, and met my immigration attorney on Monday morning and went off to the U.S. Embassy along with some of his other clients to uh, have the visa extension interview. The challenge was that after the interview, they didn't tell you whether you got the extension or not. They said, come back in 24 hours and you will find out whether you've got the extension. So there was a fretful 24-hour period where I went back to my hotel and tried to walk around Ottawa and try and find the peace and presence of the Lord while I was wondering whether we got back into the country. 12 o'clock on Tuesday, I arrived back at the embassy along with about 40 or 50 other people uh, the, the, the plan was you line up outside the embassy by the security guard and, and then he hands you your passport and then you flick through to figure out whether you've got the visa or not. Um, very stressful process. I was about five or six in the line 
And every person before me got a, a yes. They, they, they got their visa. They got their passports, got their visas. All things went well. It came to my turn. They couldn't find my passport. He looked around. He uh, stood there for five or six minutes. He was on the phone for most of that time. Eventually, he said to me, uh, Mr. Sudworth, unfortunately, there's a problem with your passport. Uh, someone needs to see you inside the embassy. But it was lunchtime. So I went through the security process of actually being able to get into the embassy. That's obviously U.S. soil, so that's a significant security process to get into. And I walked into this waiting room, cold and dark. The lights were off. No one was around because it was lunchtime. And I sat there for 45 minutes to an hour. And in that 45 minutes to an hour, I faced the very real possibility of a life not lived in the U.S. And I began to weep. We were certain and sure of the promises of God. We were absolutely convinced that God had called us to the U.S. That's why we had sold up everything and used all that we had to, to move over here and to start this church. We were absolutely convinced of, of God's promises. And it's very easy kind of looking back to say, well, it's obvious that God was, was in all of this. But in that very moment, in that very moment of facing the real possibility of an alternative outcome, we began to doubt and to question the very purposes of God. And I'm sure every single one of you here have had a similar situation, maybe not uh, trusting for visas, although I know some of you are, but I'm sure every one of you have had situations where you believe the plans and the purposes of God are sure and certain one moment, and then almost the next moment, you suddenly feel like those plans, those certain plans and those sure promises just seem very questionable. And you've probably responded in the same way that I responded and in the same way that we're going to see John, the author of the text that we're looking at, how he responded to a similar situation when he thought that the purposes and plans of God were, were up for question. We're in a six-part series through the book of Revelation, well, the first seven chapters of the book of, of, of Revelation, a series we've entitled The Revelation of Jesus. And, and as we've kind of gone from week to week, um, as we further get further into the series, I'm less able to summarize some of the stuff that we've actually touched on. But I do think there is one thing that I constantly want to remind us of, and that is the genre or the style of writing that the book of Revelation is. It's something that we're not very familiar with. There are times as we read the book of Revelation that we will recognize that it's a letter written to seven churches. Other times it's very clear that it's a prophetic word spoken. Other times it's, it's very clear that it's a testimony declaring the lordship of Jesus Christ. But primarily the book of Revelation is apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic writing is something that we're not very familiar with, but it was something very familiar to the recipients of the time, uh, first century Christians who were facing intense persecution from the Romans and the Jews. Apocalyptic writing embraces or uses uh, symbols and picture language and metaphors that, were, that made sense to the original recipients but don't make much sense to us. And so essentially, as we navigate our way through these texts, and I think you've, if you've been here for any part of that, the series, you've, you've probably picked up on it already, but, but what John is doing through the revelation that Jesus gives him is he's painting a picture of the supernatural realm, of the, uh, primarily of the throne room of God, of, a, of another world, as it were, a world that is far greater and far more glorious than the world we actually uh, uh, live in. It's uh, written here, it's a world of grandeur, it's a world of splendor, it's a world of, of drama, it's a world of eternity and power that is, that is far bigger and far weightier and far more significant and impactful than the world we currently live in, a world surrounded by 
shopping at Trader Joe's and sipping on oat milk lattes. And not that there's anything wrong with either of those two things, because I do those two things all the time. And so with that in mind, Revelation chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. The one, uh, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. What an incredible text. What an amazing passage. I mean, this is probably, or perhaps, I would suggest perhaps the, the, the passage in the book of Revelation that most of us are familiar with. This incredible scene that John describes. He's in the spirit. If, you're, if, if you were with us last week, you will know that in this, this vision that John has of the throne room of God starts in chapter 4. In verse 2 of chapter 4, uh, it's, John writes, he goes, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And, and he begins to describe this, this scene that he sees, this, this throne that is in the very center of, of, of heaven and surrounding the throne or, or, or emanating from the throne was this emerald rainbow and this, this sea of glass. There was thunder and there was lightning. And, and, and then there were 24 throne, other thrones on which were seated these angelic beings called elders. The, the, these elders who were dressed in white and were crowned with golden crowns. And, and, and around them were four additional angelic beings called living creatures. One the face of a, had the face of an ox, one the face of a lion, the other the face of an eagle, and the, th the fourth had the face 
uh, of a man. And then John begins, John notices something that he hadn't seen before in the vision. He notices that the one seated on the throne, God the Father, is holding in his right hand a scroll that has been sealed with seven seals. And the scroll has writing on the front and the back. Now, these are details. What we're going to do essentially is just work through the text kind of somewhat line by line because I want to point out details that often we can overlook and not realize the significance of it. Scrolls in ancient times were generally written on one side only, just purely for technical reasons. But this scroll was a detailed scroll. This scroll had, 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 had lots of information. Essentially, it was, it was, if you read past Revelation 5, you begin to learn that the scroll contained God's plans and God's purposes for the earth. God's desire to bring his kingdom, his reign, and his rule onto earth. It was his plans for, for judgment, his plans to dismiss and to overcome injustice, to overthrow and to destroy Satan, and with it, sin and sickness and death. But it was also God's plans to release blessing and to release favor and to bring redemption and renewal of all things. But the scroll has, is, is sealed with, with seven seals. I, I want to just make sure that we fully understand, although we've seen lion and we've seen oxen and we've seen man and we've seen eagles. This is not seven semi-aquatic marine mammals that are guarding the scroll. Just so we're clear, this is a wax seal that has been placed on the scroll, meaning the scroll has been completely and absolutely secured and it is meant for one recipient and one recipient only. And then we have this mighty angel. I, I, just as we go through this text, I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to, to paint a, a, a picture in your mind of what this could look like. This, this mighty angel, this, this, this mighty warrior standing in front of the, within the, the, the throne room of God, and he asks this question, who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? This is not an angel kind of gathering with his two or three best friends and kind of under his breath going, hey, do, do you know if anyone's worthy to, to open the scroll? No, the, we, as we're going to see in a few moments, this is a throne room that is, that this scene is being played out before uh, angels that are numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 upon 10,000 and before every person, every creature in heaven and on earth. Essentially, what this angel is, is asking, he's, he's saying, is there anyone out there who is worthy to break the scroll, to, to break the seals and to open the scroll? And this question is met with deafening silence. In verse 3, it says, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Who is, who is worthy, the, this angel is asking, who is worthy to initiate and to execute on God's purposes for the world, to bring about the reality of God's kingdom, to, to bring history into completion? And the entire universe is, is holding its collective breath, waiting for the answer to that question, to see if someone would step forward. And no one does. And with a horror that is infinitely worse than the reality of what I faced in the U.S. Embassy in Ottawa, John faced the reality of a world without Christ. John faced the reality of a world without the kingdom of God. And he did the only thing he knew was appropriate. 
he began to weep. Essentially, what John has realized that if, if these seven seals can't be broken, if, if this scroll can't be unveiled, if, if there's no one worthy to begin to execute on the plans and purposes of God for judgment and for blessing, then, then weeping is the only appropriate response. You see, God has very clearly committed himself to, to, to righting wrongs. He's very clearly committing himself, has committed himself to overturn injustice and to renew that which is broken. And John has spent his entire life living with that conviction and living with that vision. And I want to say, if you are a follower of Jesus, then so have you. But if, if God isn't able to find one who is worthy to begin to execute on the purposes that he has, then suffering, all, in all honesty, is redemptionless. Injustice will forever remain. And in all reality, without sounding dramatic, the universe becomes pointless and our life absolutely hopeless. The genocide in Rwanda many years ago becomes the final word, as will any other atrocity committed in any other nation, even in our own nation, or any atrocity committed to you, or any accusation that has been leveled with you, without, against you, without someone worthy to take the scroll of God and to begin to execute on his plan to deal with injustice, then those things and those people and those actions have the final word. And it's no wonder John begins to weep. But then in verse five, one of the elders said to John, said to, said to me, do not weep. Essentially, he's saying, I know something you don't see or, or behold or, or look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. If you were here for part two of our series, when we look through Revelation 2 and 3, you will remember the, the word overcome or triumph came up time and time again. It's the Greek word Nike, where we get the symbol or the clothing brand Nike from. Essentially, what, what, what is being said here is Jesus is the one who is Nike'd. Jesus is the one who is overcome. He is the one who has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and, and its seven seals. Because of the lion of, tri of the tribe of Judah, there, there is redemption and the universe does make sense because he has overcome. It's very important that we don't just move on from here. I think it's, it's and I did this for so many years when reading Revelation 5 in particular. We, we, we read verse 5, which talks about the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we probably, if you've read any C.S. Lewis, you probably think, well, that's Aslan. That's, that's, what, that's what clearly what uh, John is referring to which he's not, but anyway. Um, and then this, this, this root of David, you know, what, what is that all about? And we, it's, oh, it's too hard to understand, so let me just move on to verse six and carry on reading. And, and I think when we do that, we begin to miss out on the incredible reality of what is taking place here. And so I, I wanna take five minutes just to try and explain what those two terms mean. I, I'm sure most of you, well, I, I thought most people knew what, know what this game is. I asked Sheetal, if she knew this game, and she didn't, and she's a parent. But the game Guess Who? Are you familiar with the game Guess Who? So 24, 24 pictures, and I realize there are 24 elders in Revelation 4. That's, there's no correlation between the two. This is not what the elders look like, just, just so you know. But 24 pictures, and each of you get a card, and then through a process of elimination, you ask the opponent questions, you know, does, is your person a woman? Does your, is your person wearing uh, glasses? Does your person have facial hair? And you begin to 
knock down various people, and then eventually you are left with, is your person Rachel, for example. I mean, that's how the game, that's how the game works. And I, I, I say that because I think as God began to reveal who the Messiah was, he was playing a divine version of guess who? Patiently and slowly and carefully and surely beginning to reveal the reality of who his Messiah would be as he reveals his heart and reveals his intention throughout the Old Testament. It starts in Genesis when Adam and Eve have sinned and, and God uh, declares a, a promise that there will be a Messiah that will come. He doesn't say very much about who this Messiah will be, but he, he does say enough to, to encourage Adam and Eve who have just sinned and, 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 and it speaks to them of the, of the sweet promise of salvation that will come. Essentially, the promise in Genesis chapter 3 is that, is that the seed of Eve, although he goes through incredible suffering and, 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 and anguish, it, through suffering and anguish will ultimately destroy the snake. A couple of chapters later, the revelation of the Messiah becomes a little bit clearer when it's promised that the, this Messiah will come through the, the line of Abraham, a pagan worshiper. In fact, more specifically, it'll come through Abraham's son and grandson, Isaac and Jacob, not their older brothers. And a few more tiles are knocked down. At the end of Genesis, perhaps the most surprising of all the indications of who this Messiah will be is when Jacob is speaking a blessing over his 12 sons. And before you, you get to that point, if you know the story of Genesis, you assume that Jacob is going to declare his favor over his favorite son, Joseph but it's actually over his other son, Judah, where he declares that this lion-like Messiah, this one who was prophesied as the son of Eve, it is through Judah's tribe that this Messiah will come. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. It is through Judah that there will be a Messiah who will come to, to set God's people free and redeem all of humanity. It's a thousand years, an entire millennia before the next clue of who the Messiah is, is made known to us. And it comes through a prophetic word that Isaiah speaks in, in, what, is in what we know to be as Isaiah chapter 11. He speaks of a king who will come, a Messiah who will come in the line of David. He will be seated on David's throne. He's referred to as the root of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And he says this, this one who, who, who will come in David's line will be nothing like the other kings who were, who were corrupt and evil. This king will reign with justice and with righteousness and will usher in such a transformation into the world, such a redemption and renewal into the world. What Isaiah says, lions and leopards and, and wolves and bears will lie together with the very creatures they would prey on, lambs and even children. And then eventually... It's in Matthew chapter 1, where the identity of this Messiah is revealed. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the New Testament says, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of David, 
The root of David is essentially what he's saying. The son of Abraham, essentially the one who will come from the tribe of Judah as a lion. And Revelation 5 verse 5, the verse that we read a few moments ago, is a a declaration or or a statement of praise for the fact that we have beheld or we have looked upon or we have gazed upon the one who will come like the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David to redeem and set man free, mankind free or humankind free and also bring transformation and peace into the world like we've never seen before. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And, and I can imagine John is sitting on the edge of his proverbial seat wondering who this Messiah looks like. I mean, he's probably thinking in his, in his mind, it's, it's probably some lion-like figure or it's probably some, some, some big-chested, big-armed, mighty warrior. And he turns. And verse six tells us, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. And and. and Friends, can I say verse 5 and verse 6 is what is both so glorious and so shocking about the gospel of the kingdom of God. It is glorious because through the line of the tribe of Judah and the roots of David, these two promises are are both fulfilled through one person. But it comes through one who was like a lamb and was slain. The gospel is a message of victory. The gospel is a message of redemption. The gospel is a message of renewal, but it's victory and redemption and renewal through humility and through suffering and even through death. Jesus overcame. Jesus triumphed, but he did so through death. And once he died, he was then raised the all-conquering, all-victorious king. It's why one of my favorite songs is, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on which the prince of glory died. Not when I survey the empty tomb, although that is just as right, but it's when I survey the wondrous cross because the glory of the gospel is the fact that Jesus suffered for us, overcame suffering and overcame the devil through death and his ultimate resurrection. I was asking myself the question, why? Why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God have just executed a law or divine decree ensuring that sin was removed? Why did Jesus have to suffer and die? And I, I don't know necessarily the answer to the question, but what I began to settle in my heart was just the fact that because we can never say of God, it's, if God were to just, just decree sin over, we could possibly say of God, God, it's all right for you. You're up in heaven. You don't know what it's like to face the reality of losing a loved one. You don't know the pain and suffering of being falsely accused. You don't know what it means to to, to have to wrestle with the realities of brokenness and sin in this world. We can never say of Jesus, he doesn't understand. Hebrews 4 tells us that we don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing. He's experienced it all, all but the sin. And so what John begins to describe from verse 6 onwards is this incredibly, this amazing triumphant scene in heaven. Actually, as far as I understand, it's the scene in heaven at the ascension of Jesus. Jesus has come from the cross triumphant and he's being ushered into the throne room of God. And and John is beginning to paint this amazing picture. Look at verse 6. The lamb, 
just as an interesting fact, this is the only time in Revelation 5 verse 5 where Jesus is referred to as a lion. 28 other times in the book of Revelation, he's constantly referred to as the Lamb of God. The Lamb had seven horns. Horns represent authority and and power. And we, we are told that this lamb had seven horns, complete power and complete authority. Do you, do you see the constant contrasts that John is painting for us? This lamb, which is such a weak animal, has absolute power and absolute authority. Had seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. Jesus sees everything and releases the fullness of the spirit into the world. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And watching this are the four creatures and the 24 elders that we were introduced to in chapter, in chapter 4. And it says that each was holding a harp. I, I want to just preface what I'm about to say. If there is anyone here who owns a harp or anyone here who plays the harp, I, I don't mean to offend you with what I'm about to say. I love classical music, but honestly, I find the harp perhaps the most pretentious of all instruments. That's just my personal conviction. I'm not, a, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, I, I just lay that at your feet. Please don't judge me for it. But the harp and the pan flute are just two instruments. I, I just, I can't get my mind around. I, I really can't. The, the, the point I'm making is when we think of a harp, we think of this elaborate kind of instrument where, where someone is just so pretentiously plucking the, 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 the strings. And it's, it's normally, it normally paints a picture of something very solemn and something very somber. I, I was doing some reading about, about ancient harps, harps that were around in biblical times, and they were nothing like the harps that we know. One commentator said this, the ancient harp is more like a banjo. So, so maybe that really challenges your thinking of what's going on in heaven right now. These, these 24 elders, each holding a little banjo like, like Steve Martin. I, I, I don't want to ruin the picture, but, but here's the point that I'm trying to make. Have you ever heard a melancholy song played on a banjo? No. Banjos are joyful. Banjos are joyous. Banjos are, are fun instruments. And that's the scene that we need to understand is happening before the throne room of God as Jesus arrives. It's a, it's a, it's a scene of joy. It's a scene of laughter. It's a scene of celebration that the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Can, can, just, just to pause for a moment. No, I'm not going to sing. Just to pause for a moment. This is, what is going on is very significant. All the focus and praise and adoration has been to the Father seated on the throne. And what is about to happen is the, is the focus and the adoration, while still on the Father, is about to include the Lamb as well. What they are saying is, 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 is you, O Lamb of God, Lion of the tribe of Judah, what you have done is so glorious and so magnificent and so mighty that you now are worthy of being worshipped just as the Father on the throne is worthy of being worshipped. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. 
They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So get, get this picture of a, of a throne and then a lamb and then 24 elders and then four living creatures and then el- uh, uh, angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands by ten thousands. It's the, it's the ancient way of saying gazillions. They, they had no way of saying gazillions. So, so picture, just get, get, get that in your mind. Just, just a sea, as far as the eye can see, of, of, of angels, choirs of angels, singing in a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard not just a gazillion angels, but every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. So, so again, picture throne and lamb and 24 elders and four living creatures and, and, and a gazillion angels. And then beyond that, Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This, forgive me for the perhaps crude explanation, but this explosion of worship rippling out from the center of the throne room of God, encompassing all creatures to Him who sits on the throne, to the Father, to Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. To the Son, be praised to both of you, both to the Father and to the Son, to the Father for His plans and purposes and to the Son because He is worthy to take the scroll and to execute on the purposes of God. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. John wept at the thought of a world without Christ. John wept at the thought of a world without the kingdom of God reigning and ruling. And at the end, he worships along with every creature in heaven and on earth because there is one who is worthy to execute on the purpose of God. And that is the lamb that was slain, the one who came as the lion of the tribe of Judah. I was thinking through how we respond to this message this morning. It's always my desire whenever I preach to find God's heart for personal application. And maybe you're here today and maybe you are weeping at the possibility or the sense or the thought that you might have that that God's plans and purposes that seem so sure and seem so certain might not be coming to pass as you had thought. And maybe that's causing you to weep. And I want to say, I want to encourage you hopefully from this message that, that, that let God have the final say on your situation and circumstance. Let God's word be the better word spoken over your situation rather than the word of others or the word of the world. Let Jesus redeem every situation. We overcome because we overcome in him. But I think in all honesty, the greater application of today's message is for us to join the elders and the four creatures and the gazillions of angels, and the voice from every tribe, nation, and tongue that are gathered before the throne right now, worshiping Jesus and the Father. I think the only appropriate response would be for us to take some time to join that heavenly chorus right now and begin to worship the Father and to begin to worship the Lamb. So I'm gonna invite the worship team, if you guys wouldn't mind coming up. 
And we're going to take a few moments just to end this morning by singing a song and, and of praise. All the saints and angels bow before the throne. I love that song. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. Father, we, we thank you for your word, which has made it so abundantly clear that, that, that you are seated on the throne, the throne of authority and the throne of power. And you have this, this plan for your kingdom to be executed and outworked here on earth. Jesus, today, I thank you that we can join with creatures from every tribe, nation, and tongue, with, from, 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 with, with with creatures from all over the earth and, 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 and myriads of angels worshiping in heaven, that we come before your, your throne this morning to worship you. We join with the heavenly chorus that is happening right now. Father, for those of us who are wrestling or going through difficult times, for those of us, Lord God, who are weeping at the possibility of your plans and purpose not coming to pass, I pray that as we sing this song this morning, as we fix our eyes on the, on the Lamb who was seated on the throne, I pray that breakthrough would come in Jesus' name. I pray that we would be reminded that you have the final word in Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening. To stay up to date, follow at Anthem Church Chicago and visit us anthemforall.org. Anthem Church, all of Jesus for everyone.